Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Camera, sound. Oh, we don't have a camera. Let's, let's just call it a podcast then. Welcome to Be Real. It's your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast. My name is Chance Solomon Pfeiffer, and I am will be reprising my role of uh, of Noah Ballard. You are what a canonical B movie character you are. You pop up all over. You think so? Yeah, I think so. Am I a regular Tor Johnson? Am I a vampire? <laughs> I think you are something of a vampire. I don't want to have any lines. I don't want people to recognize me, but I desperately need the money. Everyone, welcome to our program where, you know, every other week or so, we talk about three movies within a similar genre. Genres that recently have included, uh, you know, seemingly unnecessary franchise sequels and movies about going back to school and uh, movies about covens of witches. But today on our program, we're going to be talking about movies about directors making bad movies. Some of them know it, some of them don't. The broader world certainly does. Uh, but yeah, we're talking The Disaster Artist and Bowfinger and Ed Wood. Absolutely. Do you think anyone, Chance, will look back at this particular podcast and much like Greg Sestero's girlfriend says to him, maybe don't bring up that thing you did with Noah a few years ago. <laughs> Maybe it's better if it doesn't come out. The SEO is too good, baby. I won't be able to hide it. It's yeah, gonna... you will always be known on the internet as one of the B-real guys. And I, I think I know what we have to get into in the ethos corner today, but everyone, stay tuned. We should, I want to do a better job of shouting out our guests up at the front of the show. We're, so we're going to be talking to Josh Spiegel, who co-hosts the Masterpiece Cinema podcast and writes for Slash Film. We're going to talk to him a little bit later about the disaster artist and Ed Wood. But I think Noah and I need to light out for our ethos corner here and talk about how we saw the room on the day we met. On the day we met. On the day that I interviewed you to be my friend. And I took the job. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. Keep it real. Think slow. We should get through it just fine. Little rider, Donnie. Donnie, little rider. I was working at the time as the uh, editor of the Daily Nebraskans Arts and Entertainment section, and Chance had applied for a senior writer or a writer position. And like, as a matter of course, you have to fill out this stupid one sheet of like your recent resume and whatnot and hand it in. And we have to go through the process of saying like, okay, you're hired. Cause there is actually, there was at the time money involved. Mm -hmm. um, so Casey and I, my assistant editor, we were going through the pile of freshman resumes that we got and we got to chances and under his hobbies or like hobbies and interests, it said boxing or, right. or, or I'm an amateur boxer or something. And Casey and I were floored. 
<laughs> and so we like immediately called you on your cell phone and like asked you if you would come meet us at the coffee house so we could interview yeah. you. And we did that. We like punched you around a little bit, like emotionally and intellectually. Very and true. much like a, like a, one of those speed bags, you kept coming back for more. <laughs> and once Casey and I were satisfied, we looked at you and said, well, we're going to go see this movie, The Room tonight in Omaha. You should definitely come. Yeah, so I became, like, the Denny of your, like, weird senior DN group. I didn't know anyone. Many of these people I would later go on to be quite good friends with. But you you took me to this movie, um, you know, up the road in Omaha. And we threw the spoons and yelled at Tommy Wiseau. And But, yeah, and then I had seen it at another live screening in Philadelphia with my friend British Chris. This is, like, two years ago. And Tommy Wiseau was there. Right, and I like you, got to meet is. him and like shake his hand, and what does hand feel like? Uh, clammy, as you'd probably expect. Uh-huh. <laughs> he was like very sweaty and like looking like someone in his early sixties, which like apparently he probably is. Right, and then there was that thing too when the room was playing in Omaha. We got to interview Greg Sestero. Oh yeah, I wanted to ask you about this. Yeah, so we ran a Q&A with him in the Daily Nebraskan, which was like at the time we thought ourselves like true celebrities. Right. Like cuz we had really like touched up against fame. Um but in retrospect it really wasn't that big of a deal. Uh but it was a fun interview and yeah, then I read the book. Did you read the book? I've never read the book, The Disaster Artist, upon which the movie's based. Yeah, Simon and Schuster put it out like three years ago and i remember reading it in like two sittings on the subway it's like a very quick read and tom um, bissell wrote it with him right tom bissell who's like a very renowned nonfiction writer wrote it He's with great. greg sestero and the the so you said you hadn't read it i have not no so it's sort of it, it it's dual narratives one narrative is the rise and fall of the friendship of greg sestero and tommy wiseau and then it's cut in with the just the narrative of the production of the movie. Yeah. And it's much like the film. It's it's uh, cut in with like how many days they are till they hit like the 40 days, which is what they've budgeted for. And then like each chapter is broken up by like 53 days of 40 days kind of thing. <laughs> but yeah. Well, should we just get into the room then? Or the that. disaster artist? Absolutely. Well, you have to go inside the room to go inside the disaster artist. So let's go. Okay, let's run. Yeah. So big disclaimer on this movie, as I sort of alluded to um, earlier. If you're going to go see this movie, you have to have seen The Room. One of the biggest mysteries to me surrounding it is what anyone would make of it if they didn't know what The Room was. This is my movie, and this is my life. Not great. You and me, we are all the same. Oh yeah, how's, how's that? We both have this dream. That we would be famous. Yeah, I guess we do. <laughs> you have a malevolent presence. You are a perfect villain. I could see you as Dracula, Frankenstein. I'm not Frankenstein. I'm hero. give them job, I give them salary. I'm gonna spend five million dollars on this movie, Greg. Five, are you kidding me? Five million dollars? And they are not grateful. Nobody respects my vision. The Disaster Artist stars James Franco playing Tommy Wiseau, the writer, director, producer, and star of The Room. 
Tommy, 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 Tommy. His name is Wiseau, and he is the bomby. <laughs> and then Dave Franco, James's little brother, plays Greg Sestero. Um, I think if you're going to like this movie beyond hearing famous people do lines that have cult appeal that came from really non-famous people, I think if you're going to like it, you're going to like this movie for the bond it strikes and convinces you of between Greg and Tommy. And that's oh, what yeah. the opening of the movie is. On Mark Maron, uh, Franco said that this is like the third in his bromance trilogy. Right, that's right. Which is um, Pineapple Express, This is the End, and now The Disaster Artist. So they meet at this acting class in San Francisco, and basically they are attracted to each other by... Desperation. Yeah, by... Magnet the magnetism of poles the one pole being like I am afraid and I can't do this and I want to be an actor but like I don't think I have it I don't have confidence and then yeah. you see then you see the insane person the the vampiric too many belts Tommy Wise Tommy Wiseau just going to town on the Shakespearean sonnet and everyone else is sort of repulsed but Greg is attracted to this man because he has what Greg does not which is complete a complete lack of self-awareness and a completely irrational confidence in himself and so they're hanging out there's all these questions about tommy because tommy is very weird in the movie and in real life you he clearly has this sort of eastern european accent but he claims he's from new orleans uh he says every time greg's like how old are you he's like i'm your age but he's not <laughs> he's clearly not and then he has uh, he's like semi- maybe 20 years his senior <laughs> And has also possessed a seemingly bottomless wealth. Um, And so they start hanging out and they're like each other's only friends. They start kind of obsessing over James Dean. They move to L.A. together where Tommy already has an apartment that he doesn't live in. So that kind of deepens the mystery there. Um, And then after a series of rejections, they decide uh, true to life. Why don't we make our own movie? So Tommy writes the script, and then they star together as as Mark and Johnny. Yeah. The the movie. What should I tell the whole story of the room? The movie brutally fails because uh, it's awful, and then becomes <laughs> a cult hit over the succeeding uh, ten plus years. The last scene of the movie sort of posits that Tommy realizes during the first screening of the room that it like he should just embrace the narrative that he like meant to do this all along. Right. But in reality, it like took him months, if not years, to like get around to that. Like, yes. He was pretty devastated for a while, according to the book. Mm-hmm. And why wouldn't he be? He just wasted $6 million. With that in mind and kind of pushing into the movie, I think that, yes, it's very, it's complicated what this movie thinks about Tommy. And Tommy is also, you know, not blameless in driving people away from him and in creating like a toxic movie set, he Tommy might not be the best guy, um, but I feel like the James Franco honors him in some way with just how committed he is to this performance. It is a he cares as much about embodying Tommy Wiseau as like DDL cared about embodying Lincoln, and that is an insane thing to say and an insane tack to take, but he does it. <laughs> Um, and it's, it's one of his best performances of his career for me. 
I don't know if I'm willing to get there with you. I think that this is one of the more bizarre performances of his career. But, like, he keeps, like, on Marin, he also, like, uh, equated this performance with 127 hours, which I think is, like, pretty pretty out there. Yeah. Um, in terms of physical performance. But, yes, but my question of, about his performance is, like, for you, like, it went past caricature? Like, it never, for me, went past, like, maybe Halloween costume. Staring into his eyes and the kind of, like, placid sadness that was constantly in Franco's expression. Um, And the way he was able to deliver lines that are clearly, like, were written and fictionalized for the movie. Like, Judd Apatow being like, you're not gonna make it, all right? Not in a million years. And he goes, but after that... Like, but st- but completely committed as though that were like a real question. Um, that's what did it for me. I think there is oh, horrifying investment in there almost on some level. It's a well, that's the thing, too. What genre is this movie? Is it drama or is it comedy? Uh, comedy. It's a pretty dark comedy, though. Like, it's pretty sad. Like, everyone on screen is sort of, like, sad in their own way. Definitely. In the way that it's like a... I mean, in the way that the supporting cast of Ed Wood is sort of the same way. Like, weirdo movie people. But the cast of Ed Wood, they at least have the love of each other. Do they? I believe... Yes, I think so. I think when you talk about Tor and Jeffrey Jones and all those people... Okay. But I feel you like know. there's a similar camaraderie in the room's cast, too. Like, I they think... all are unified in how horrified they are to, like, be there. But, like, the kept the, the checks keep clearing. So, like, ugh. <laughs> well, they're... Yeah, well, they're held hostage by uh, the profit system the same way Tommy currently is. Right. I mean, the shoe is on the other foot these days. Yeah. I'll come out and say I I like this movie. I had a I had a great time at the theater. I think if I think if you have seen the room, there are special treats in it for you. Like this movie posits that the the line "keep your comments in your pocket" preceded the writing of the right. <laughs> of the script, which is amazing. For me, we're talking about kind of parsing out these real world problems. I think the problem is Greg. That they're beholden to the book and they're beholden to the real Greg Sestero in telling this story. And I think the weirdest unanswerable question is, why, Greg? Why did you stay? And I think the movie has some answers, like Greg needed some money. This Greg saw himself, saw what he needed in Tommy. But, like, I think there are some weirder, darker elements of desperation that could be teased out were, were we not, you know... If Dave Franco and Greg Sestero didn't have to sit together to be interviewed by The Hollywood Reporter. Right. It's also weird that they're brothers. Like, that's a weird casting choice. Like, I understand it, but, like... And the the Dave Franco performance, to me, he doesn't just... He just doesn't seem like a character. Like, when you watch Greg Sestero in The Room, you're like, well, that guy's delivering bad lines badly, but, like, he is a human being and like what is going on with this kind of like malice that he's trying to put on the screen there has to be somewhere in him and when you look at dave franco you're really just looking at someone who's lost in a fake beard i think yeah i think the the biggest flaw of this movie is dave franco yeah that's where i'm at that's an interesting call 
And everyone else is also like under, like the cast is so underutilized. Like I think one of the best, I wouldn't even call it scenes. I would call it sequences of the right. movie. The movie has a lot of sequences. The sequences is the sequence where uh, Josh Hutcherson, who plays the character, the guy who plays Denny, mm-hmm. is just like watching Zac Efron, who plays the guy who plays Chris R, just like get into character, and just the terror on his face is so <laughs> fucking funny. That's true. Where he just like has no idea what he's gotten himself into, and he has Which... like no idea like what his character even is. Yeah, which is, again, something that is such a treat if you're a fan of The Room because you know the Chris R. performance that's coming. Right. (laughs) And I think that's, I think that is a lot of the joy is you're just like, it's this, (laughs) it's this, I mean, pardon my French, but like, mind fuck of seeing really famous people portray like the least famous people ever, but who are famous to you. Because you're like, that's Denny. But all of a sudden, <laughs> but all of a sudden, the glasses psychologist guy is Nathan Fielder. Fielder and you're like, it's, right. it's, some, it's beautiful psychologically what this does to a super fan. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's, it's the best kind of fan fiction. But yeah. I guess my question to you is, does it ever supersede fan fiction? I, I'm not sure that it does. Right. I guess just my questions that emerged, you know, in like the the myth of the making of the room is or are, are different than the ones that maybe James Franco and company are interested in. Like my questions are like, how did he possibly convince people to just shoot that much sheer footage of like fake intercourse? Right. Like a third of the room is sex scenes. A third. Yeah. That's most of them. That's like a huge, but, but they must've spent like, most of this, like, 10 days of the schedule doing sex scenes alone. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes the movie is at its best, actually, when it can fully turn Tommy into the villain. Like, the scene where he is berating the Lisa character. Right. And Paul Shear is just like, you're making me uncomfortable, you're making everyone uncomfortable. Like, that's that's a very, like, well-acted, tense scene. And you do yeah. manage to feel the chaos that maybe is always on a low budget movie set that is like heightened so much by Tommy's, uh, you know, lack of taking prisoners. Um, there, there are some good, there is some good drama. You're right. So I, maybe I am confused about the genre as well, but I think this movie is at its, its best when it is a drama. I think inherently if you're going to, cause it's a tragedy, it's a, it's a tale of hubris and, lack of self-awareness and ultimately ends in tragedy. Yeah. The, the ending, like the, the climax of this movie, I would argue is when Tommy cries, like at the premiere and sure the movie like resolves in a happier place. And like, yes, this guy did make a lot of money on it. Like eventually it boils down to this guy had a dream and could not do it despite his best efforts. Yeah. Comedy is tragedy plus time, baby. That's what we've got here. And maybe that's the thing, since it's from, it was made in like 2001, 2002, maybe it's fine. So before we get into our rating, should we tell people how we rate movies on Be Real? I would love nothing more. All movies and most of life can be described with our rating system. The four categories are good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. 
The first good or bad refers to intellectual quality. The second is pure pleasure. Good good is easy, things that make you feel smart and happy, and that for both reasons you'd want to do again. Like watching The Departed, or Jaws, or calling your pal to do a podcast with him. Good good movies make Noah say, Love that. Bad bad is easy too. Things that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just wasted your time. Things like watching White Chicks or Wild Wild West, a conceptual double album of Christian pop punk. Bad bad movies make Chance say things like, I hated that. Good bad then is something you recognize as worthwhile, but not something you enjoy. Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, most classical music, eating your goddamn vegetables. Good bad is about being an adult, and these kinds of movies make Noah say, I mean, I'm glad I saw it once, but never again. Conversely, bad good is for your thoughtless inner child. It's Cheetos, it's late career Billy Joel, it's movies like Christmas Vacation, Honey, Kids, and Deep Blue Sea. Bad good movies make chance say, But it failed in such an entertaining way. Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear an opinion stated as fact. I think we have a lot of the same problems, but I was never convinced that this is not at least like a, you know, a pleasant, soft, good good. I think like it's I think it's well acted. I think the source material is doing them a ton of favors and they're pretty like honorable to it. I think there are a lot of questions as we've raised about, you know, who is this for and who will enjoy it? But at the end of the day, like I said, I think it's a great Franco performance. And I think when we look back to on this era of like Franco swinging wildly between like Faulkner adaptations and directing lifetime movies, I think we'll be able to look at the disaster artist and be like, Oh yeah, that's where the pendulum stopped in the middle. Like that's what he was up to. He found the thing. Um, And that's why I think this press tour of his has been so interesting. Cause I think he, he found the balance on the scale. So good, good for me. This movie for me is funny because I feel like with our rating system, it has to be good, good. My questions aren't about like the, the good goodness of it. My questions are more like, so what, you know, like what's the, like, what's the, what was the point of this endeavor? Like you've done it masterfully and they like, it's almost like it shows you a presentation about how good it did at the end of the movie. Right. With the, the side-by-side comparisons of the original movie and their remake of it, which are like near flawless. Absolutely. But to what end? What's the point to what ends? Like what's like, why pick on this person further, I guess at best or at worst, and then, like, why, why chronicle this particular misadventure in these people's lives? Because, like, with Franco, he doesn't care that the book was, like, a bestseller. Like, he – maybe that's how we got the money to do it. But, like, what drives Franco to tell this story, I think, is the most perplexing thing. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if time will and future performances will answer that for me. There you go. So what are you saying? Good, good? Has to be a good, good, Yeah. With a with a caveat of so what, with a caveat of so it's hugely entertaining, but like why? Yeah. So on on all the notes that you've just laid out, why don't we get into uh, my interview with Josh Spiegel from the Masterpiece Cinema podcast? Because we talk a lot about like Franco and is it really is it really picking on people uh, if they're benefiting? Um, and yeah, all these questions are raised. So let's get into that chat. Take 13, action. I did not hit her, I... 
Okay, okay, one. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Okay, so our guest today is a writer at SlashFilm.com, and he also co-hosts the weekly Masterpiece Cinema podcast alongside Scott Renshaw, where for over a half decade, uh, they reviewed and dissected all movies that fall under the Disney umbrella of films. Josh Spiegel, welcome to uh, Be Real. Thanks for having me. It is our pleasure. So earlier this week, you wrote uh, a piece that we're going to talk about today entitled... The Disaster Artist and Ed Wood are perfectly imperfect companion pieces, which I just love because obviously the movies are so uh, topically similar, but there are a lot of key differences that we'll kind of get into as well. But I wanted to start with one of the similarities. You pointed out that both this James Franco film about The Room and this Tim Burton film about Ed Wood and his career both kind of hinge on codependent relationships between some of the lead characters. Could you kind of draw those comparisons you made in the piece out for us on the show? Sure. I, I was going into the movie thinking to myself, having recently watched Ed Wood again for the first time in years for my own podcast, which you mentioned, I was thinking about going in the fact that both of these movies are about famously terrible films, but what I hadn't expected, not having read the book The Disaster Artist, on which the film is based, that there was going to be just as much about the connection that Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero, who wrote, co-wrote the book and is played by Dave Franco in the film, how much it's about how they weirdly rely on each other. There's so much evidence in at least the movie of The Disaster Artist, which, to be fair, I've heard is a little different than the book, but I don't know how. But there's a lot of evidence in the movie that Tommy Wiseau is a really terrible friend. You know, yeah. the way that he ruins relationships for Greg simply because he's jealous. There's potential... I've heard there's more of a, a homoerotic undercurrent in the book that is not really explored in the movie, probably because they're being played by two brothers, which would make it maybe even weirder. <laughs> but, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, th- there is this sense that Tommy is cartoonishly jealous in the way that, you know, kind of like a Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction character is when she sees you know, her, her lover with his wife, there's this sense that when Tommy Wiseau sees Greg and his girlfriend, who's played by Alison Brie in the film, that there is a weird, like, cattish, catty quality to how he's reacting. And it's even more heightened because in real life, Dave Franco and Alison Brie are married, which, again, right. it's these weird, like, extra-textual things that are hard to ignore. And so I was thinking about that relationship in context with in Ed Wood, part of the movie is about how Ed Wood became this infamous director. Although not, it's not as much about how one of his famously bad films was made. It's a lot of it is about how Ed Wood connected with Bela Lugosi, mm-hmm. and you know, in the later years of his career, well after Dracula, at a point where he was really just taking any job he could just to get money because he had a crippling morphine addiction, and how. The, the two movies are about this, you know, a filmmaker and an actor, and in one case, it's, you know, reverse situations where the filmmaker is the acolyte of the actor, whereas in the other case, I, I feel like in the new movie, it's a little bit flipped, but, yeah, I was thinking a lot about those two relationships as I, as I wrote that piece. And it, was there sort of a sense for you that maybe they'd be better off 
without each other in either or both cases, but that like if they were without each other, they just wouldn't be who they are, or at least who we see in these movies. I mean, I, it's an interesting question. I think there's almost two sets of answers to give. I don't think that Ed Wood and Bela Lugosi would have been better off without each other in terms of their friendship, because there is, you know, Ed is not completely unaware of the fact, at least within the context of the film, he's not unaware of the fact that Bela Lugosi has a serious problem that needs to be dealt with. He wants to get Bella the help he needs, even though for a while, Bella seems like he's just relying on these goofy jobs just for the paycheck, no matter what. I, definitely, Tommy and Greg Sestero, within the context of that movie, would have been vastly better off without mm-hmm. You know, there there are the there are a couple of hints throughout, and again, I don't know, not having read the book, I don't know how accurate they are to how Greg Sestero's career was failing to succeed pre The Room, but there's one scene where he and his girlfriend are watching an early episode of Gilmore Girls, and the character that Jared Padalecki from Supernatural plays is on. He's like, oh, I, I auditioned for that. You get the sense that it's like, yeah, he might have been this close. But to go to the last part of your question, I mean, would Greg Sestero be anybody if the room wasn't a thing? And that's, I, th- that's, I think, the most interesting part, for sure. Um, yeah, the sense that this is a, it's a terrible film, and it is. I mean, I've seen the room before. It's a terrible film, and Greg Sestero has not really done anything else with his career aside from ride this as far as he can, but it's weird. Like, he, he probably didn't need Tommy Wiseau for a friend, but at the same time, the only reason we know him is because of the room. Yeah, it seems like he's just become one of the, like, keep. he's just become the keeper of the keys for this kind of, like, bad movie by writing a book about it and kind of, like, making Tommy seem presentable. Um, and I, I wonder, I want to get into this maybe in a little bit, but just how that kind of translates to the Dave Franco character's uh, character on the screen. Um, let me pivot real quick. Josh, when you talked about Ed Wood on your podcast, you were clear. You think this is unequivocally uh, Tim Burton's best film. Uh, and I want to jump off that, but real quickly, could you com- could you sum up why? Oh, sure. I mean, I, part of it is that Tim Burton has had, for me, a real rough go of things lately. You know, he's making yeah. films that just rely so heavily on computer effects and there's not a whole lot of the wit and cleverness that was present in his earlier films whereas ed wood i think really balances very delicately the admiration that tim burton had for cheesy practical effects laden 1950s sci-fi movies and a, a clear you know passion for telling this story in a way that doesn't seem mocking you know one of the reasons why i was really curious to see the disaster artist in context with ed wood was Ed Wood could have easily been a really snide and smug film because, again, very few people are going to say that Ed Wood was a great filmmaker or that Plan 9 from Outer Space was secretly a good movie, hashtag hot take or something. You know, they're bad movies and he's not a good filmmaker, but the movie treats his love of film, even the fact that he goes to compare himself to the man's face to Orson Welles, which is obviously nonsense outside of the surface connections of well we've directed star in our own films you know yeah it doesn't it doesn't treat him nastily and i think that is one of the big reasons why i love the movie so much and although i would say now johnny depp is kind of a human dumpster fire he's quite good in that movie and martin landau i'd forgotten since i hadn't seen the film in so long he is truly excellent in that movie i believe i mentioned in the podcast you know he won the oscar for best sporting actor and samuel l jackson was 
famously displeased he was nominated for Pulp Fiction. And listen, Pulp Fiction's a great film. Samuel L. Jackson's great in Pulp Fiction. And Martin Landau deserved that Oscar. So <laughs> You could argue that there are more layers to the Bela Lugosi performance than the Jules Winfield performance. I would agree. Yeah, definitely. Uh, um. So let me touch on what then you just touched on, because I remember you saying that as well, that one of the things that I think uh, you and Scott and your guest all really liked is just that Burton clearly looks at Ed Wood as somebody with, a, I guess I'll say good heart and a really noble, optimistic disposition. Um, what tack do you think... And I think this is really up for debate based on like what Franco has said in the press, but also like what the movie does. What tack do you think James Franco and company, what attitude do they have toward Tommy Wiseau? It's, it's a, I think it's a lot more, I think the, the, the uh, polite word would be complex. It might be a little bit more muddied because Disaster Artist opens with a series of well-known actors, I think Kristen Bell, Adam Scott, J.J. Abrams, you know, director of Star Wars, show up to talk about the room. Very briefly, you know, just their kind of reaction to it. And, you know, one of the reasons why the room has had this long shelf life is because, although it had that very terribly, you know, terrible run at a one theater in L.A. for Oscar consideration of 2003, it kept playing and people like Paul Rudd and I think David Cross became aware of it. And that led to other you know, alternative comedy folks, actors, directors noticing it. And so there's that sense at the beginning when you see them talking about the movie, like, oh, so this, you know, James Franco is not just going to be snide and smug. And then the movie ends with a comparison, a shot-by-shot comparison where you see how close his version of the of various shots and scenes match up with the real thing. So there is a clear sense of interest in the movie, but at the same time, I mean, Tommy Wiseau is a he's almost a caricature of a person and it's hard not to feel like there's a sense of mocking. But then by the end of the movie, when it first premieres, the the room first premieres to the cast and crew and they're laughing by the end of it, you're meant to feel bad for him because although he eventually slides into saying, yep, I was making a comedy, which no, he wasn't. No, of course not. (laughs) But the fact that he is that hurt by it suggests they're willing to depict him as a, three-dimensional character in that way, but there, it, it's a lot more complex, I think, because Tommy Wiseau, unlike Ed Wood, is such a guarded person. You know, so much of the disaster artist revolves around three questions that you never get the answers to. How old is he? Where is he really mm-hmm. from? And how does he have all this money in this bottomless pit of a bank account? And with Ed Wood, you know, from the very beginning, he's a very open character. You know, I, you know, he, he, you know, he dresses up as a woman, he's transvestite, but He's very comfortable in his own skin, and he's comfortable with other people like, you know, Bunny Breckenridge or uh, I forget the I forget the guy that Jeffrey Jones plays, the, uh, the amazing Criswell. You know, right. he's, yep. he's comfortable with all these characters, whereas Tommy Wiseau, he's, you know, he's trying in a way to play a part when he's interacting with his cast and crew, and it's just there's more opaqueness to him. So it's it's, I don't know that they could have ever been quite as, open about their embraces of mm. Tommy Wiseau as Tim Burton was with Ed Wood. So. Let me ask you this. You kind of closed your piece, Josh, by talking about how uh, Philip Holliman, who played Denny in The Room, was at your screening in Phoenix, right? Uh-huh, yeah. He's, apparently he's from the Phoenix area. And, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't realize it at first because when, 
because uh, a fellow critic of mine mentioned, oh, I invited one of the people from the movie to be at the screening, and I was like, Ooh, who's going to be at our screening? Because, <laughs> right. you know, I know I, I know a couple of the names, and he was like, oh, you know, the guy who played Jenny was like, oh, okay. And I didn't remember the character, honestly, but then I saw, oh, Josh Hutcherson is playing that character. Okay. And, yeah, it was very interesting, because what I mentioned at the end of the piece, I don't know if you're going to bring this part up, is that he's working on a comic right. book series that's about the making of the room. So talking about these guys just riding it as far as they can, it's, I'm going to just continue to chronicle this incredible... <laughs> improbable movie that I was part of. Yeah, that is indeed where I was going. Um, so I guess how do you when we think about the approach that Franco takes toward Tommy Wiseau is is there is there mocking is it is there some level of derision there? How do we kind of how do you weigh that with this kind of cottage industry that's like sprung up around? bad movies that you write, you know, Ed Wood was too early, completely missed the boat on it. Um, but yeah, how do we, how do you feel about wh- whether we're just talking about kindness, politeness, morality of, you know, these people kind of like trying to make a buck off the fact that other people, any way you look at it, are kind of laughing at the cinematic equivalent of somebody tripping. Right. And I mean, it's, I mean, for, for the guy who played Denny, of course, it's him probably just thinking, you know, I, I, there must be a little bit of milk I can get this cash cow. Why am I letting right. it die on the vine? You know, I got to do something with this. Johnny's still taking care of him. Always, always <laughs> taking care of him. And, you know, I, I, I wonder how much of it is a sense of exploitation, like exploiting it. But at the same time, Tommy Wiseau has done that as well. You know, he, oh, he has, sure. you know, he, he has maybe not parlayed this into a massively successful career, but he obviously, you know, he. I think there was another show he did for a few episodes for, was it Hulu did, aired it? The Neighbors, I think is what it's called. You know, he oh, was, yeah. I think he's, I think he's starred in or directed a couple episodes of Tim and Eric. So, you know, they're all kind of exploiting this as much as they can, which I think then speaks to the, the sense that they can only portray Tom Wiseau so kindly in the film because, again, he's so mysterious. And on the one hand, you know, one of the characters, I think the character played by June Diane Raphael, you know, mentions that one, like, when they're, they're having lunch during the filming, like, the movie is about, like, the universe. Like, Tommy against the universe. Like, that's what this is all about. Like, how the universe has been against him for so long. That's what this is manifesting as. It's, there's just so much of it, of it that's honest while also being terrible at the same time. That it feels like the exploitation of it almost is a natural is a natural conclusion. Let's kind of part with this one, Josh, because I, I was thinking about I was thinking about some of the freedom that Ed Wood has from these discussions that we've been having, just because the events portrayed in the movie were forty years before the film. Whereas it's so much dicier when you just you know you watch Tommy Wiseau come on to and sit with Franco. On Jimmy Kimmel, do you think, as a, to the extent that it can even be considered as a standalone piece of art, do you think the disaster artist is advantaged or disadvantaged for its proximity to the room compared to, say, Ed Wood and his work? Well, I think one of the big differences, and I think I mentioned earlier, is that the movie Ed Wood is not specifically about the making of one of his films. Right. It does cover three, I think, right? Right. It, co- it covers three. And of course, the most famous of them, it's really like the last, the third of, third act of the film is about getting Plan 9 from Outer Space together. But 
there is the, and I'm sure one of the reasons why Edward did not perform very well at the box office is that, you know, not a lot of people have seen Edward's films because they're bad and because they've only ever had a reputation for being bad. And, you know, to me, what, thinking about whether or not the disaster artist is going to be a successful piece of art, I, I feel like I can't answer that because I've seen The Room and I really wonder yeah. what people who haven't seen The Room are going to make of this movie because I can imagine it would be either alienating or at least confusing because there might be some people who think, did that really happen until they see the shot-by-shot comparison at the end? Because before that, I could easily see someone who's unfamiliar with it looking like, this can't be real. They didn't right. really do this. That can't right. possibly be true. You know, so I, I, I really would be curious. I, I, I honestly don't know how well it works as a standalone piece of art because it helped knowing about the movie going in. I don't know yeah. if that would be the case for someone who doesn't. And I, and I think if it doesn't, if it requires you to know the room, kind of in the same way that I think to myself, if I need to read the book before I see an adaptation of the movie, you know, the movie adaptation of whatever that book is, then the movie's not very good because it needs to stand on its own, whether or not it has source material. And I wonder if people who don't know the room are going to think, yeah, no thanks, I'm good. Yeah, that's such a weird um, counterintuitive thing that, like, you know, I'm sure that A24 was just like, we can bankroll this movie based on the fact that, you know, $12 million worth of people have seen The Room in the last 15 years, and yet whether or not it's actually, like, is the disaster artist a good movie depends on, yeah, you're right. It, it's impossible to unsee The Room. I just can't imagine. Have you talked to anyone who's seen it who has not seen The Room? Uh, I... I think there were a couple of critics at my screening who had not seen it, who enjoyed it. But, I mean, I would even be more curious about people who aren't critics, maybe aren't tuned into the movie world automatically, because, you know, even those critics might have heard of the movie, so they might have some passing right. awareness of it. And, you know, it's funny, you mentioned A24. I mean, this was originally released by Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers had the right, oh, that's to right. The film. And then I think after the work-in-progress premiere at South by Southwest this past March, they gave it to A24 because they probably were like, yeah, we don't know what we're supposed to do with it. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Josh, I, I think that about does it, but uh, where should people find you online if you wish to be found? Uh, well, I, I write, as you mentioned, for Slash Film. I also uh, sometimes have pieces up at the Hollywood Reporter in their Heat Vision section, and I am on Twitter at Masterpiece sporadically these days, but I am there. And each week, People can listen to Masterpiece Cinema, uh, depending on, I don't know when this episode is going up, but this month alone in December, we've had, let's see, Coco, There Will Be Blood, we of course will be talking about Star Wars, The Last Jedi, uh, mm-hmm. later in the month, and we, you know, we, there are over 300 episodes of the show, so if you're listening and you haven't heard it yet, you have 300 plus episodes to catch up on, so you have <laughs> you homework have... in front of you, get to yeah. it. You have 300 hours you don't know what to do with. Give them to Josh and Scott. If you have if you have a lot of rush hour commutes, you've got all the time. And yeah, so it's, it's available on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, anywhere you can find a podcast. There. All right, man. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you again for having me. And action. He made movies like no one else. You want to keep moving. You've got to get through that door. Perfect. Perfect. Do you know anything about film production? Well, I like to think so. He had an eye for talent. I met Bella Lugosi. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the most uncomfortable coffin I've ever been in. No, he's very much alive. Well, thanks so much to Josh for coming on the show. That was a fun conversation. And uh, I think we're going to pick it up from where he left off by talking about Ed Wood. Absolutely. Let's let's get over there. Um, Noah, you want to synopsize? Sure. 
Ed Wood is uh, 1994, black and white. Did your Amazon, th- did you get it on Amazon? Uh, no. They had like this big disclaimer at t- on the top. It's like, it's in black and white. <laughs> so that's where we're at, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, for three ninety nine, we get it that it's not in color. Please um, don't write to Jeff Bezos and say the movie looks old. Right. Something's wrong with your television. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, and it chronicles the life and times of Edward D. Wood Jr., who right. was the director of such notable films as Plan 9 from Outer Space. And it stars Johnny Depp and uh, Martin Landau and uh, Sarah Jessica Parker and who else? Patricia Arquette. Yeah. And sort of Vincent D'Onofrio for 30 seconds. <laughs> great we've covered all the most important parts um, and yeah it just shows directed, how this oh yeah directed by tim burton it just sort of shows how this huckster goes about financing his like sort of weird it's almost like a movie about james franco trying to finance the disaster artist <laughs> he like has this sort of religion or allegiance to the sort of pulpy movies of 10 years earlier and wants to make his own sort of campy horry or like campy versions of like things he sort of understands so we watched beetlejuice not that long ago yeah you did not love beetlejuice i found it detestable no what'd you think of this movie i think this movie and a lot this is not an original opinion but i think of the um, Tim Burton movies with which I am familiar, I would say this is probably the best. Yeah. Which is not to say that it's like inherently a good, good movie, but it's definitely the most competent and the most sort of like its risks all pay off without it being like, get us out of this weird like space desert with the sand snake. Uh-huh. Like, I don't want to <laughs> be here anymore. Like put us back in the real world where like things were more interesting. Yeah. It- Tim Burton movies a lot of are, clay in this one. Right. Tim Burton movies are better when he's making them about Ed Wood and not trying to be Ed Wood himself. Right. Yeah, um, keep the clay to yourself. <laughs> Timothy. Timothy. Uh, um, yeah. He, he has a real reverence, I think, for Ed Wood and is particularly good at conveying like a double reverence for Bela Lugosi via Ed Wood, via his own filmmaking. And those are some of my favorite moments where like all of a sudden the, the Howard Shore music swells and it's trying to prove to you that like, you know, somewhere in this shell of a man is like a real acting force in the Landau playing Bela Lugosi. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely like a it's a master class on like historical drama, I would say, and how to play responsibly like a Bela Lugosi type character who people have like sort of a household familiarity with. And Mm -hmm. but also this guy who you're he's the subject of your biopic. So Johnny Depp, I think it's one of his sort of more interesting performances as well. It is interesting. I mean, it's and it's so weird to go this far back with him too, especially like Johnny Depp, a man of, of dubious character. We, we now know today the crimes of Johnny Depp is not just the name of our podcast episode. Um, but it's weird to see him so young and sort of like trying out the kind of like 
bug-eyed, like, well, hi, it's me, that, like, will later become the only thing he does. Right. But I think that's what's so interesting about the character, as we're comparing sort of, like, Tommy Wiseau, like, a still mysterious sort of figure, never really unpacked by the movie. I think this one unpacks Ed Wood in a way less ambitious way, but ultimately, like, a more successful way, in Mm -hmm. that... Much like, and we'll get into it with Bowfinger, but this guy just wants to be a studio director. He doesn't want to make, like, the movie with the passion of Tennessee Williams. He just wants to, like, keep working and keep making movies. Right. As bad as he is at the craft of movie making, the joy for him is in the craftsmanship. He he almost has no interest in the movie. He just wants to be there calling action and cut which I think is the f- most... F- and h- him like Bowfinger, and I think it's interesting that these movies are like from similar time, um, but it's just about these guys, they don't care about the product, they care about the process. And it's, yeah. I, I wonder if the same thing maybe is true for Tommy Wiseau, and maybe Franco fundamentally misunderstands that. And then he sort of, the way uh, Greg Sestero uses Tommy Wiseau, he sort of bleeds... Uh, the last little bit of fame and squeeze like a towel out of Bell Lugosi for these three movies. Yeah. And watching that is sort of like, is this the crime you have to commit to sort of, cause that's the thing at the end, he's just, just trying to keep Bella alive so he can keep making his movies. But then somewhere in Bella's uh, like drug rehab, he realized, like I thought that the saddest scene in the movie is when, you know, uh, Johnny Depp, uh, Ed Wood has to wake up Bella Lugosi from like clearly the midst of his drug treatment because they, he realizes that Bella Lugosi has no money and right. can't pay for the treatment. He has to wake him up by convincing him that the doctors said like, they just took the test. You're fine. Now the results right. came in, like it's time to leave. And then like put a positive spin on it because they like get him back to work and take those final sort of like loving, moments in like like that the i think the most miraculous if you go back and watch plan nine there's the scene where the, he comes out of the house and picks up this flower and smells it and the flower sort of breaks in his hand which is like accidental and it's but just it's so loving the shot of it and like mm-hmm. the the relationship between these two it's sort of like the it reminded me similarly of the in Disaster Artist, the way um, Greg Sestero ultimately shaves his beard right. for uh, Tommy for no fucking reason other than he loves him. Yeah, in some ways, Ed Wood is a more convincing tribute to like when you are fully dedicated to a craft. It doesn't mean that you that your like life is limited or that you have no life or that your humanity is squashed, but just that like you are a snowball rolling down a hill. And so that the, you know, that footage you took of Bella when he was like almost on his deathbed, like does wind up in this like shitty movie. And, you know, you may like Sarah Jessica Parker, but like she can't have that main part. If like the other person is like financing your movie um, and it makes Ed Wood more ordinary and more complex than Tommy Wiseau, I think. So the Landau performance is undeniably great. It's uh, incredible. Do you have a favorite 
moment or a favorite inflection? I like when he does for the second time his, I will make a world full of these atomic creatures um, (laughs) monologue. And then like at the end, you realize that he's sort of been just wrapped up in the moment. And as they're walking down the street, he begins doing this monologue for the second time. And then like, you realize as the camera pulls back that a small crowd has gathered to like watch him watch this famous actor who now has a strange relevance, A, because of his drug abuse being in the tabloids, and B, because of the acts of Ed Wood. And he gets this, like, little sort of applause. And that's all he needs, because he's dead in the next scene. Right, right. He just needed his, like, kind of recognition, and he got it. And that was, and so in that way, Ed Wood gave him the ultimate gift a friend can give. I think my favorite, and I, I didn't notice this until I was, like, actually re-watching some clips, but in the amazing scene where high on morphine, Bella comes down to that little like bog and has to wrestle with the, the octopus, but the octopus has no motor. So Ed Wood's just like, shake it around a little bit, you know, when, when it's eating you, you know, <laughs> make it seem like it's alive. And Bella's such an old pro that he does it. And the screams that he screams are identical to the ones he screams when he's going through morphine withdrawal. And the kind of like beauty of recognizing that he's giving it everything, but then also they're not recording sound in that scene. You know, sound? Oh, we don't have sound. So Bella is just screaming because it's his job, but the resonance to like the later scene is amazing. And that's like Burton too. Burton's doing some good, very thoughtful, nuanced stuff here. But yeah, it's un- it's an unbelievable performance by by Landau. Yeah. So should we rate Edward? Yeah. I think it's a good good. I think it's like a, a pretty great great. Yeah. I think it's one of the better films made about Hollywood, and it feels authentic. But like for how cheap it was probably made for, and it's it's just well done on every like the script for that movie is good. It's really, really good. And they took some time with it, which feels nice. And I think for, this is like, I'm going to reappraise in, in like how good I think it is sort of, this may be like, like a classic. It's high praise. So, and, and if An I underappreciated can, classic, I would say. This is sort of a ambiguous difficult to define praise of this movie too but like think about the number of times that we as moviegoers have visited the 1950s and filmmaking in the 1950s it is a lot of fucking times yeah and and almost to the point where there's like you know a shorthand for like you know you watch something like hail caesar um which is just like, yeah, I've been here, got it. Like studio lot, uh, the hat, the fixer, the reporter. Like you've just you've been there a lot. And to the to this movie's credit, like it really, even as someone who like doesn't really love sci-fi and like not comic book camp, all that kind of stuff, not really my scene. I was just like, I got a Google Vampira. Like what? What is I googled this? Googled her like, too. Yeah. It's a movie that benefits from having a smartphone in your hand while you're watching it. (laughs) It's true. Yeah, to figure out what's going on. Um, But it makes you want to stay somewhere and immerse yourself in a place that so many movies have just kind of like taken for granted that you want to be there in the golden age of Hollywood. Yeah. And it's just like a cool narrative-vised version of like someone's IMDb page. 
which right. is like also a fascinating place to be. Should we get to Bowfinger? Let's do it. Okay, 1999, Bowfinger. I never even heard of this movie, but a, oh, pretty, really? suce- a pretty successful movie. Yeah, I think it was. Um, and it's got a pretty A-list cast. Sure does. A-list director. Um, yeah, Bowfinger Chronicles titular, what's his first name? Bobby. Bobby Bowfinger. That's right. Who, played by Steve Martin, is this, like, has been sort of Ed Woodian producer. I say, like, never was. Yeah, and he, like, puts on, you can see from the walls uh, that he's put on, like, cheap-looking plays, and he's made some cheap-looking movies, and yeah, and he's trying to, like, put together his next project, which is called Chubby Rain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which it's is... It's a script that's come to him from his accountant-turned-screenwriter, Afram. Uh, and it's one of the curious things about this movie is I don't understand if Bobby Bowfinger thinks that Chubby Rain is worthwhile. Yeah. He just, I think he just needs anything to keep. It's a script that's good enough for him to like exert the effort of making it. Right. And And much like Ed Wood, he has this little troop of people as well. Right. Right. Yeah, he has this little team who's all, like, really counting on him to, like, pull through here. And, yes, it's the screenwriter slash accountant. Uh, it's Christine Baranski is, like, the aging, like, never-made-it film star, much like the mother, maybe, of The Room. And then Heather Graham gets off a bus, wanders to Bowfinger's house slash office, and she proceeds to work them all over using her sexual prowess and get exactly what she wants. I would say close in comparison. She's like the woman with the $300 from uh, Ed Wood. And then there's Jamie Kennedy who plays Dave. Oh man. He's the insider to the industry. He's the only person to whom Bowfinger confides as he like sets off on this ridiculous plan to get chubby rain made by, um, like insinuating himself next to this Jerry Renfro, this high-powered uh, exec played by uh, Robert Downey Jr. And he kind of like just... Steve Martin does so much bull... He's an incredible bullshitter. Like all of Steve Martin's greatest hits in film are just like comedy bullshitting. Right. Um, Playing bullshitters who... Yeah, he plays a good bullshitter. Yeah. And so he somehow gets jerry renfro to be like yeah if you can get uh kit ramsey the hottest action star of night of this movie's 1999 played by eddie murphy if you can get kit attached to chubby rain you gotta go picture yeah, get me kit no get me kit right now how many pictures we got in the pipeline yeah. you don't put me on hold i put you on hold you put me on hold and you're a dead man Hey, Jerry, how are you? Bobby Bowfinger, Bowfinger yeah, Films. Right. We worked together on that thing, you know, a couple of years ago. What thing? The, 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 uh, the famous movie. Hey. Oh, hi, Kit. How are you? My man. How's Dolores? Good. Well, you are first in line for the script, Kit. You can't be more first than first. Can I talk to him? Huh? Can I, can I talk to Kit? Absolutely, Kit. Hey, Kit. Got a surprise for you. Kit. Kit. I'm losing you. Kit. Oh. 
bad line there. Oh, these, yeah, these yeah. cell phones are so bad. You know, Universal is begging me for this script, but I don't want to give it to them because they screwed me once. You really ought to take a look at this. Yeah, take a look at it. <laughs> okay, and then I need to stop you right there because Go that to me is a golden premise for a movie. Uh-huh. Where this movie loses me, I'm going to have to say early on, is when it then pivots to being a movie about Scientology. About Mindhead. So Eddie Murphy, who's this <laughs> actor who's like in the clutches of this cult called Mindhead, yeah. led by Terrence Stamp. Um, yeah, when that sort of unfolds, the movie takes sort of a bizarre comedic turn into farce, which I don't think it necessarily needs. I think it it and then it becomes a movie where Eddie Murphy plays two different characters <laughs> in different makeup, which, again, right. I don't think it needs. Right. I think it's funny enough as it is, but that it like its ambition is so much loftier. Yeah. That it just like that's where it's like, oh, Bowfinger. Like that's sort of my moment in Bowfinger when Jason uh, Manzukis says from uh the audience of seeing the room for the first time. I don't, I don't like this. <laughs> um, that's interesting. You say that because on the one hand, I think that this is Steve Martin wrote this script too. It's his script. Uh, I think that the presence of Mindhead is, could be really smart because it is the way that you get, Kit Ramsey into the movie because like here's a guy they're making a like an exploitation movie about aliens but here's him kind of like driven from his mind he believes in aliens and weirdly sort of unlike Scientology Mindhead is trying to convince them that they don't exist and not that they're like God um but then I don't understand how they don't parlay Mindhead into actually just working with Kit Ramsey and then the whole movie is them still shooting him unbeknownst to them and then his brother Jif also played by Eddie Murphy, is in the movie. But if you're going to have Mindhead, can't Kit just come be in the movie? And let me say parenthetically before we get too far, this movie's, like, politics are pretty, like, they're tough. It makes some jokes that, like, you know, the kind of jokes that Al Franken wouldn't want coming out of the closet at this point in his career. It's weirdly even seems dated for 1999, right? So if I can paint a picture for you, Steve Martin is challenged with Bobby Bowfinger is challenged with the task of putting a crew together for the production of his movie, Chubby Rain. Mm -hmm. And his first thought is, do you know where I can find people that I can underpay who won't tell anybody about it? And then we cut to the California Mexican border where about 20 Mexicans are being chased by what is presumably gunshots from the uh, immigration commission, the immigration, the INS. Mm -hmm. And he backs the truck into these poor Mexican people running for their lives. And four of them just get into his truck and they drive away with the truck being shot at. And then those four Mexicans that they've picked up then pre become not only the crew for his movie, but then like weird cinematic auteurs That's who right. study 
filmmaking. And so then the movie like comedically posits that like, if only the good, like, you know, charlatan white people just took in these poor Mexicans, everything would be fine. Like they would figure that like, I, I don't, I don't, what is this movie? Finish my thought for me. I'll finish and expand your thought for you, which is that the things that Bobby Bowfinger does in this movie are classic Steve Martin on-screen bullshitting, but in a genre that is fascinated by the psychology of selfish people making work in a selfish way, Bobby Bowfinger is possibly the most selfish and the most confusing in terms of how we're supposed to... Are we supposed to root for Bobby Bowfinger? Is this movie supposed to get made in our morality? Oh, no. And that was... That's an issue from like I think scene to scene there's a lot of clever stuff like even if you see it coming a mile away it's still like okay pretty well executed farce but like it's a tough movie seeing uh, it greenlit at least in the past three weeks this movie yes. does not pass the Weinstein test there is a lot of uh, sex being used as a power dynamic in like a movie set situation. Akin to something like State and Maine, I'm not here. I don't want to put the movie on trial for that because it is like. You mean when State and Maine makes light of him being a child predator? Right. I mean, but (laughs) another movie where it's just like, yes, this is how corrupt Hollywood is. And Bowfinger does a decent job of being like, well, look, Heather Graham is a mover and shaker just like everybody else. I think the movie pulls off her character only by the fact that she's sleeping with everyone. Right. Like, for her own self. But then it's just, like, it's either, like, a sort of a misogynist film or it's just not a very feminist film. I think the latter is especially true. Right. Um, But, yeah, I think it's just talking about, like, this old Hollywood immorality and just, like, this is how the pictures get made by, like, everyone exploiting everyone but then there's that thing too of just like steve martin comedy where he just he comes from this place of like thick smeared on 70s irony when you think about him and chevy chase and you think about the other we've done three amigos and you think about the jerk and dirty rotten scoundrels like do you have anything besides mexican food (laughs) yes when you think about that line (laughs) that you love um when you just think about steve martin on screen it's all like it, the comedy is always premised on you being like, he's a, a terrible person in a in a heightened situational comedy. And like, if that's not enough for you, Steve Martin is not the one to look to to give you that sort of like Ben Stiller puppy eyes beneath the bad behavior. He'll never give them to you. But you, so you're agreeing with me that politically this movie is sort of problematic. Yeah, I mean, it's if this movie came out today, we would call it problematic, but it didn't come out today. Um, can we also like double back for a second? And did you have a moment when you watched the disaster artists when you're like, or when you rewatch the room, if you've seen it, where like the room, like, and Tommy are pretty fucking sexist. Oh, for sure. And it's interesting that we like celebrate this movie even as like a terrible disaster, but like Tommy himself is like a pretty, like he's a pretty low opinion of women. I think where the where that movie can get away with it is that everyone betray me. Like the whole, the entire world is against. So you're Tommy. saying what he has is a low opinion of people. But I think at least the disaster artist is has questions about like, like would you want to hang out with Tommy? The disaster artist is not sure. But 
Bowfinger just assumes that you want to make a movie with Bowfinger. What it's it, because everyone in the movie is so self-serving. He's maybe like the again because his intentions are not to be the world's greatest filmmaker. In fact, he doesn't even particularly nobody who particularly cared what the movie looked like on an artistic level would shoot a movie where the star doesn't know he's in it. The right. whole conceit of what he's trying to do doesn't apply to. I don't think an actor or like a, a creative person like Tommy Wiseau. Yeah. Like Tommy gets what he wants so much so that he like creates a fake alleyway to look like the alleyway outside of the studio they're doing. He goes at all the lengths possible. Whereas Edward and Steve Martin's character, Bobby Bowfinger, uh, are only looking to be directors and say action and cut. And they don't really care about the thing. They care about being big time or being like just working directors. And that's what people like know about them. Right. And his level of success is literally it's, it's bookended by him saying one of these days, a FedEx truck will come with, with a package just for me. Oh, the Wells Fargo wagon is coming down the street. Don't let it pass my door. And then at the end, he gets an offer and it's not like here, come have a three picture deal with Paramount, but it's like come for a reasonable amount of money to Taiwan to direct this ninja exploitation movie. Right. Right. And that's his level of success is an, is a, a director who continues to make movies. Do you think turning a page, do you think that also the, the presence of Jif and the sort of like nutty professor driven insistence that Eddie Murphy play multiple roles. Didn't that kind of stop him from like unpacking like a pretty interesting, funny, like depraved, like superstar character. Sure. But I have to say though, the character of Jif is probably like one of my favorites. Like Eddie Murphy pretends to be a different persona. Maybe I thought like Jif is pretty hilarious. And I think the funniest scene of the whole freaking movie is when they make him run across traffic <laughs> and he has to do it like a scary thing, but also like in character, but also like in character. Yeah. And it just renders Jif just like devastated. And like he's he's like had like he's in a near-death experience that's been filmed. And then Bowfinger's like, Alright, we need you to do it again. Yeah. And like that's a beautiful Heavenly God, Heavenly God, Heavenly God. <laughs> oh man. I yeah, he does it is interesting. I mean, Eddie Murphy is nobody's saying Eddie Murphy's not talented. When he started doing that voice, it's like that sounds nothing like Eddie Murphy. How can he do that with yeah. like no slip up, like not the way Austin Powers does or right, Mike right. Myers does? Well, his it's not a caricature. Voices. Just like the Nutty Professor is like a caricature, right? And like the clumps are like caricatures, but this one's just like another kind of like nerdy, sort of like code switching yeah. individual right. who like also isn't like comically stupid, but is definitely stupid. Right. But then I have to say, though, that I think the Eddie Murphy character of, uh, what is it? Kit? Kit Ramsey. Kit Ramsey. I think his, like, what do you make of his, like, racial take on Hollywood? In some ways, he's right. 
in some ways he's right, but the level to which he's paranoid about it feels very much like, oh, you wrote this, didn't you, Steve Martin? Yeah. And Eddie Murphy's just saying it and will let him say it because, like, he is a black actor. But ultimately, these are, like, sort of white-sounding versions of, like, black paranoia about the industry. That's true. Like, the, the idea of him, like using a search engine to look through a script to find out that it had a an easily divisible by three number occurrences of the letter K, which means there were 300 or 400 and change KKKs in the script. Right. It's just like a little, it's sort of saying like, of course there's black prejudice in Hollywood, but it's not that bad like kind of thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like inherently a, like a white sounding joke. It sure is. Uh, it's just an yeah. old white guy movie. Definitely. I think that's my problem with Bowfinger. Yeah. Is that like, it's a little too like baby boomer, racist, sexist humor for me, but like otherwise an interesting premise. Sure. That's, that's a good one. Yeah. I think it's too many people that are past their primes, uh, especially Steve Martin, satirizing something that feels older than the context almost like if Bowfinger had been set maybe made in 99 but set in 79 like that might have made more sense but I think what's unlikable about this movie as an uh installment of this genre is the fact that like it's not a true story so you already Mm. have like a so what story on top of a like this is fiction. Like what's, what's interesting about this. This is just a movie made by people who have become very wealthy because of this business, making a movie about people making a movie, which is stupid. Why should I care about chubby rain? If Bowfinger doesn't even care. And that's the thing too. It never hits that note either where Ed Wood and of course the disaster artists do too, where it is a tragedy. Right, no. It's never a tragedy. It's always a broad comedy. Steve Martin doesn't want to go there. No, and I think that like that would be a more interesting, and I think it's where Steve Martin, thankfully, has gotten to in his career is like a little bit more dark humor. Mm-hmm. But had he made Bowfinger like today, I think it would be a far better, probably more Soderbergian affair. And that's all is what we're looking for here on the pod. Something a little more Soderberghian. Right. Um, all right. Should we rate this? Sure. I'm a little confused about what I want to rate this, actually. Because on the one hand, it has like some very funny line readings. Especially from, we can't get out of here without talking about Christine Baranski. And like how funny some of her line readings are. And that kind of like, that like, the recap scene of like what the hell just happened here like did we spy on a man and then blackmail him with the assistance of scientology into releasing this movie and she goes it was a beautiful lie (laughs) she's so good in this movie which that kind of stuff leads me to want to say that it's bad good but i think what it has is funny setups that take too long to unravel and then politics that don't suit the day, so maybe a good bad. What do you think? Mm. You think it's like interesting as a 
sort of a reference point. Yes. <sighs> With some funny ideas that don't quite... I don't know if I'm really describing a good, bad movie, though. I might just be describing a bad, bad movie. That's kind of where my head is. And I think, like... It, it's not as... Like, whereas Staten, Maine is so biting a satire of the film industry as to say the film industry is fucking stupid. I'm going back to plays. Love, David Mamet. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. This movie's like, ultimately thinks movies are great. And the Staten, Maine script is twice as clever as this script. <laughs> oh, man. Staten, Maine is unbelievably funny. Did you, what did you rate that movie back in the day? Good, good? Or did you I give it a I good, bad? I think it was good, bad. Yeah. I love that, though. It's certainly better than this. I think, if I, if I can jump back in for a second, I'm trying to think about other times I've swung back and forth between good, bad, and bad, good. And I remember I did so with Gone Girl. And then you were like, if you're this confused about which of the two categories it is, it's probably just bad, bad. <laughs> so I think uh, I'll land there. That sounds like sound reasoning. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to have to say that I'm like glad I saw it once but I think it's ultimately a problematic movie that should not be referenced in the future pretty inessential also and pretty inessential to anyone's understanding of like anyone's career or any sort of movie other than this specific one we're doing a podcast about yeah, well, I actually, actually I know we didn't talk about this but I, I know from listening to his show that Josh Spiegel loves this movie so our apologies to Josh. We're not that high on Bowfinger. Um, find all of our episodes on BeRealPodcast.com. We're on Twitter and Facebook. You can search Be Real. It'll come up. Two, two E's, right? Like a film reel. Isn't that right, Noah? That's what I'd been. That's the impression I was under. Okay. We won't change. For the past 70-odd <laughs> episodes we've done. Okay. Great. Uh, if you want to email us, you always can at BeRealGuys at gmail.com. Noah and I, we've... Uh, We've probably got a holiday episode and a year-end episode in us. We'll see, uh, but we got to talk after this. But thank you for listening, and keep it up. You're scaring me. You are lying. I never hit you. You are tearing me apart, Lisa! Why are you so hysterical? Do you understand life? Do you?